0: Okay. Questions? Complaints? Thoughts? Yes, Allison. Here's the microphone.
1: So, in Habakkuk 3.10, I was reminded of something, so I'll read it first, and then we'll go to what I was reminded by. Okay. Uh, the mountains saw you and writhed. The raging, rigi- mm, the raging waters swept on. The depth gave forth its voice and lifted its hands on high. So that reminded me of uh, Psalm 148, starting at verse 5. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded them, and they were created. He established them forever and ever. Um, And then later on, it talks in 7. The great sea creatures in all deeps, fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind, fulfilling his word. And it's talking about all these things, praising the Lord and knowing the Lord. Mm -hmm. But all these things can be used as... Like for the Lord's judgment, which I thought was interesting because they all, you know, they all know who their creator is, but mm. they will be used as a tool of judgment for. Yeah,
0: everyone. the notion, the notion of the seas, is it Psalm 93? The seas have lifted up their voice. Uh, is that 93? I just know from Sons of Core, the seas have lived. Yeah. Well, and, and it, I'll take it a step further. I didn't have time for this. The, the, yeah, the oceans in particular are from an Israeli point of view, from an Israelite point of view, uh, depict raw power and almost chaotic force. Um, the Israelites were not a great seafaring people like the Phoenicians, even though they're on the Mediterranean. They, they, the, the lifelong fishermen are scared on a storm on the Sea of Galilee. The, the Israel, when they want to use pictures of raw power, dread, and chaos— Frequently they go to the breakers. Your breakers have overtaken me. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there is no sea. Jesus calming the storm stuns the disciples. So from f- for those people, it's, it's a picture of that sort. Of, I mean, you think of even in the creation. How does God create? There's water. And then he s- draws the water back, and he separates the water, in, and here's this orderly place for people to live. And so it's, it's God using this as a picture of the power and the and the the uh, force of his judgment as well, but no, I, all of crea- all of creation will praise him. Which is in part, God is so intent on judging that He's willing to turn the sea to blood, to turn the rivers to blood. He's willing to act in such a way that might make Habakkuk rhetorically say, "Lord, what did, what did the sea ever do to you?" Well, it's my sea, and I'm going to use it to judge. Like that's that's how intent. To answer Habakkuk's implied question that you're not really taking this seriously, when Habakkuk catches a glimpse and a vision of God's answer, he's that's not he's not worried about that anymore. If anything, he's worried that it's too severe. If anything, um, so um, yeah, no, good, good. And did you want to say more with that, or?
1: Well, I just yeah, I don't know. I guess like the physically the the sea, you know, being the ocean, but also the the reasoning that it's like chaos, even chaos praises God and even chaos will be used as a tool of judgment. And that's just so interesting to me, but
0: no, yes. Well, I think that's part of what's going to make the final judgment. So scary is like the natural order is going to be, I mean, the stars are going to fall from the sky. I don't know exactly what it's going to look like. It's going to be frightening. (laughs) It's going to be frightening when the sea and the rivers turn to blood. Um, and it's, it's, the judgment's going to be terrible, terrible. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Other questions, thoughts along these lines? Don, no, the no, microphone, our six loyal podcast mm-hmm. listeners want to hear the question.
2: Uh, some people say, uh, "How could a loving God send people to hell? I think because he is a loving god yeah. um, god, god hell proves god 's love um, because w- could a loving God permit and and not punish uh, be just with evil
0: All right, right now you you have to end up this." Go to Exodus 34, where this is put on display most clearly. Um, When God reveals who he is, he highlights both realities, and neither one of them impinges on the other. And our temptation is to say, if he's really loving, then he can't be that wrathful. If he's really wrathful, he can't be that loving. And God insists he's both. Um, Exodus 34, this is when Moses has successfully interceded for Israel. God was about to wipe out the entire nation and start over with Moses. And Moses pleads and intercedes on their behalf. And unlike Abraham's intercession at Sodom and Gomorrah, this intercession is successful. The Lord relents. And Moses asked to see his glory. And then in thirty four five, the Lord descended in the cloud, stood with him there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed. So God is talking about himself. He's revealing who he is. And this is one of the first times he reveals who he is. I'd say the first time of where he's expounding on who he is would be in thirty-three, nineteen. I will be gracious to him, I'll be gracious, and I'll show mercy to him, i show mercy. But here we get the Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin. Okay. And who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation? There, Now, I, 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 fully expect Moses to be like, "How does that work?" I'm merciful and I'm forgiving, and I don't let guilty people go free. And stay tuned; you'll get some more information to see how that's going to work. But that, that is true of him, is from the very get go, and so we need to hold on to both. And both poles, if you will, to to use an analogy. And not so, you can't emphasize the grace, forgiveness of love of God too much. But you also couldn't emphasize the holiness, righteousness, and the wrath of God too much. You'll never make enough of either one of those two things. You'll, You'll never oversell it. Either of them. Oh, Don wants to say more.
2: What do you make of the difference then between in verse seven, where he, where he talks, says, uh, "keeping mercy for thousands," uh, but then on the the uh, judgment side, it's just the third and fourth, the children of the third and fourth generation, that the 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 mercy seems gra- greater there than the than the judgment.
0: Well, I'm not saying that the mercy and the judgment are equal. What I'm saying is our attempts to extol either one will always be insufficient. That's all I'm saying is you, you can't describe hell in a way that's too terrible. Like you've you have have made hell sound worse than it is, Jeremy. That's not ever going to happen. Or you've made God's grace sound greater than it is. It's never going to happen. So there's no... no I'm not speaking to whether they're commensurate, they're equal, one's greater than the other. F- fair enough, that distinction. I haven't thought about that much. I'm just saying we we can't ever um, oversell either one of those two. Um, like, like I was saying this, like I said this last week to somebody, you're, you're not nearly angry enough in one sense. Mm-hmm. You know, If you get what I'm saying, it's like mm-hmm. God's more furious than you are at that wrong done to you. Jake, Jake Hopper wants the microphone.
2: Yeah. Can I? Oh, well, no, no.
0: Don't, Don's not done with it yet he's holding on to that thing So uh yes
2: Well I was actually going to go to a different Something something else so if, it, if You're still on topic It'll be
3: quick. We need to think about We need to think about God's wrath God's um Capacity for wrath And the Terrifyingness Of his judgment word but you know what I'm saying it makes the cross more beautiful makes us more thankful and I was thinking just off the top of my head First Peter if you call on him his father who judges impartially according to each other's each one's deeds conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways so God is scary and that should make us Far more careful how we walk, and it should make us thankful, more thankful every day for the cross. Yeah. If God's just warm and fuzzy, then the cross is nice, but eh. if there's an unavoidable, mm. eternity-altering judgment that's coming toward us closer every day, then we're really thankful for the cross. Mm. Yeah. So that's what I think about
0: it. No, I like, I like what C.S. Lewis Sorry, says, don't. speaking of his his uh, supposal where Aslan would represent in his story, Jesus. Is he safe? Oh, goodness gracious, no, he's not safe, but he's good. <laughs> you know, um, he's not a tame lion. I, I think Lewis is hinting at some of those things that, yeah, yes, yeah, that's, that's not bad. Zeb, uh, mic, microphone, okay.
4: Just thinking this, I've mentioned this before, um, but the wrath of God is one of the few things that keeps me sane sometimes. Yeah. Um, when I look at... Um, people who harm children, people who start Mm -hmm. wars, people Uh, who like the, just the wickedness that we see in this world. Yeah. Um, I mean like it would be better for a millstone to be tied around someone's neck and have them thrown in the ocean. Mm. Than for that person to fall into the hand of the living God. But here's, here's the thing. They're gonna fall into the hand of the living God. So whatever that, like you were saying, whatever that looks like to have a millstone that weighs a couple tons thrown around, like tied to your neck and you thrown in the ocean, it's worse to fall into the hands of God. And so, uh, yeah, I think one of the things that, uh, has been that just always strikes me every time I'm, like read through the Psalms every time I do anything like the number one thing that God is praised for. It seems like is his justice and his wrath against the wicked. Like there's, I mean, there's a lot of things, but like if it's not number one, it's number two it's it's right up there yes yes
0: i would agree with that yeah I, no, and we're, I, we're terrified of it
4: like yeah. our culture is terrified of it but then the weird thing is that it seems like we're at the same time there's such a, a large swath of people who are ready to hear that message who are ready to hear that there is that there is justice
0: well the unbeliever can't help but testify to these things so even today people that want to emphasize tolerance and acceptance the second you challenge their premise of tolerance and acceptance their wrath like whoa you got some wrath stored up don't you I mean if you if you tra- if you traver- transgress and, and don't fall in line with the fundamental cultural assumptions of tolerance and goodness these people are all about tolerance they've got a justice system and it's got wrath in it no question <laughs> No question. So we could, you could talk all day. It, it's, it's getting back to the notion of niceness, and I don't like that. We say God is love. What does love say to somebody who suffered greatly and they want vindication? Because that's what you're dealing with in Revelation. God loves these saints who've been martyred for their faith, and they say, Sovereign God, how long? How long till you avenge our blood? What does love say to that? Love says wrath to that. God's wrath and God—one moment— God's wrath and God's love are in concert. I was, we were talking this week with the counselors and trying to talk about how we want to avoid thinking of God like a gumball machine with all the different gumballs, and here's the happy part, and here's the angry part, and here's the holy part, and here's the loving part. God is entirely loving. God is entirely holy, which then means we've got to speak in some meaningful way about loving wrath. And God's wrath is loving, just not to the object of wrath, but it is an expression of his love to the object transgressed. So when the saints whom he loves under his throne cry out, how long to avenge our blood, his wrath in avenging their blood is an expression of his love to them. Just as if somebody were to harm one of my children, my anger towards that person would be proportional to my love for my child. If somebody, you know, greatly, grossly harmed my child and I didn't care, you'd question my love for my child. So even love can demand wrath. We, we intuitively get these in the same way that people are about love and tolerance. Get really angry if you transgress their objects of protection, you know. Um, so Jake's got the mic, then Rowdy, and then Bennett.
3: On the topic of what Zeb was saying, without God's wrath, or if you have a worldview where there is no God and there is no eternal judgment, it creates a lot of anger, because a lot of history's greatest villains totally got away with it. Stalin. Yeah. They lived good lives and hurt millions of people, Mal. and comfortably, yeah. they seemed to have no remorse, and they died And there's nothing to do about it. Why would our society be so foolish, so angry as to tear down statues of people that have been dead for hundreds of years? They want justice. They believe there is no justice, that that person got away with it. And they're venting rather impotent rage on a piece of metal shaped like that person. Because without God, there is no final justice. And they're angry because, in their view, these people just get away with it. As Christians... We don't have to have that sort of childish, impotent, foot-stamping kind of anger because of exactly what Zeb was talking about, the certainty of that judgment. Yes. The microphone
0: can make its way back to Rowdy. Rowdy, Rowdy, Bollinger. Sorry, I'm going to say that always, never. (laughs) That's all right. (laughs) Um,
5: When I was a kid, my my dad had a fiery temper, and... uh, When I think about running my mouth to God, I think about the account of Nadad and Abihu offering strange fire before the Lord. And he killed him on the spot. And then Moses straightened Aaron out, and it says that Aaron held his peace. And I've heard a lot of different preachers talk about uh, the uh, understatements of scripture and I think that would be an understatement because those two were killed immediately and then they their families were ordered not to grieve them and they were to be carried outside the camp by their own brothers mm. and uh, and Aaron was told to hold his peace and he did and he lived but uh that's what I think about when I want to ask for. I mean, there's plenty of people that done me dirty, and I. And uh, if they, if judgment fell on them, I probably wouldn't shed too awful many tears. But I'm not gonna. Uh, I and, and and I'm and I'm not saying I'm perfect. I don't. I. I still think bad thoughts, you know, but uh, I do realize that my tongue is. Very much against me, and uh, I when 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 I'm tempted to to think that way, I I really
0: endeavor to just stay silent. Well, in our our wrath, our unrighteous wrath is built founded upon one of two premises: either we don't believe God will make things right, or we want to be God and do it ourselves. That, that's it, right? So our so our make something of Romans 12 do not avenge yourself my beloved but make room literally get out of the way of the wrath of God and I have begin and again and again give myself this picture I'm standing in front of this ginormous Howard Sir Cannon with a little slingshot and a spitball get out of the way with your puny little anger This impotent you're not nearly angry enough get out of the way or is it simply, but I want to be the one with the sword i want to I want to play God, so either I don't trust God or I'm usurping his role with my unrighteous anger, and yeah, no and another thing
5: that is in that passage is that God made it perfectly clear to them, I am holy, and I will be approached hmm. as holy, yeah, and uh, I think that I don't think that we meditate on that enough. I don't. I, I I think that that is a huge problem in Christianity. Is not a high enough view of who God is. And Psalm not, fifty.
0: Uh, what Psalm fifty? You yeah. thought I was altogether like you, but I oh, will rebuke yes, you. Yes.
5: No. Yeah. I'm. Yeah. Psalm fifty's pretty much sums it up. Yeah. I mean, he he will deliver us, and he will tear the the. Uh, the evil ones to pieces and there will be no deliverance. I mean, that is you know, you I'm fallen and I'm not perfect and I can't I can't fully reconcile that in my mind, but that's what I endeavor to do. It's like I just have to realize that I'm a creature and that God is the creator. He is holy and he is gonna take care of it. And and like you said, I have I have nothing to offer as far as vengeance. The worst, thing that, the worst day of the worst thing that I could ever do wouldn't amount to a drop in the ocean compared to what God's going to do. And I really pity the people that are going to fall into the hands of the living God. But. Hmm. Bennett. Let's
0: pass the microphone over to Bennett.
6: I have three topics, and you'll be very proud of me. I was thinking Meshach, Rishach, and Abednego. You know that story about uh, them not bowing down to the golden statue because that's not the holy God? And then I also thought of the part of Aaron telling everybody to... Get all the gold. And then God said to Moses up on Mount Isaiah, um, that, that mountain. And they, he said, your brother is making a statue of gold. Yeah. And he got very angry. He came down and made him eat boiling hot rocks and water. Yeah, they and ate the
0: golden statue they got to eat their god. And then what I was reading in Exodus 34 is exactly the fallout of what you're talking about. Aaron makes the golden calf, Moses beats the gold into powder, makes the people drink it, and then goes up and the Lord was going to destroy the entire nation of Israel and start over with Moses, and Moses pleads on their behalf and God relents. No, you're you're yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Here's this last one.
6: Now, right now, I'm reading the book of Job. Mm-hmm. He's been through so much. Yes. He didn't do anything bad, and he was being tested, yeah. and he didn't commit uh,
0: the frown on God. So let me, so let me, yeah. Th- no, thank you, Bennett. Thank you. Don's next. Let me respond to that. In, in Habakkuk's case, what's coming is discipline for their sins. So when as God's people, we suffer, there's a couple possibilities, all of which I think we should give good consideration to. God disciplines his children. He disciplines their sin. He doesn't discipline it. um, Finally in, in hell, but he disciplines it in this life. Like a father disciplines his kids. So one possibility, if you're going through a season of trial and suffering and difficulty could be Lord, try and, Try my my thoughts and my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me. Sometimes it's training. It's discipline in the sense of the way going to the gym is discipline. It's it's training you and and strengthening you. So Paul, to prevent him from getting proud. It wasn't that Paul was proud and God disciplined him as punishment with the thorn in his flesh. But as a preventative measure, as, as a prophylactic against pride, he gave him the thorn in his flesh. For others, it could be for the glory of God. I'm thinking of the man born blind, and Jesus' disciples said, who, who sinned? Is this the discipline of the parents, or is this discipline of the man? Jesus said, neither. It's for the glory of God. Um, and, and I think Job is similar in that. Job, we're told, is blameless and righteous, relatively speaking. The, the evil that befell him was not for any particular thing he had done. Um, so those are all examples. So for anyone suffering... We don't want to be Jesus disciples and By think now, it's always. I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm talking. Hold on. Now. Hold on. Hold on. I'm talking. It's. It's. We don't want to be Jesus disciples and assume it's always because you've done something wicked, but we don't want to so flip to the other end that we never consider it. It certainly does happen. It also could be God guarding and and, and protecting us from other evil or preparing us for oh. something future to come or simply. He's got sovereign purposes he wants to use. This is where I get back to what I always say is when we find out what God is up to, we will be satisfied. More than satisfied. Satisfied is an understatement. But what I mean to say is there will be no no, um, hanging regrets or concerns or yeah, buts. There will be marveling at the glory of God and his wisdom. There won't be people in heaven saying, that was pretty good, Lord, but I think it would have been a little better if few less people died in the Holocaust. I don't know how the Holocaust fits the way it does, but no, there won't be any, that that was probably pretty good, but I think if you did it this way, it would have been a little better. No, we're gonna marvel and praise him for his wisdom and his goodness. And and I think faith takes hold of that and says, I don't know what God is doing here and why he's doing it. I mean, I talk to people suffering. I don't claim to know what's going on. The most I'd ever say is like, Paul, perhaps this is this. But I, I do know that when God reveals his purposes, we will praise him. And I, and I see examples in scripture like Joseph. I'm sure you read over what happens to Joseph in a few verses. It's years of his life, years of his life. You get kidnapped, your death faked, sold into slavery, thrown into prison under false accusation, watching these other guys go free. What is going on, Lord? Oh, this is what's going on. I, I think Joseph is satisfied, you know? Um and, so, we're in good company when we don't understand. We're vexed. Jesus on the cross is vexed. Trust that the Lord has a sufficient and good answer, and pray, like back Lord, give us understanding. If we get to get some inkling of what You're doing now, that'd be awesome. Don. Oh, sorry, Mike's coming. coming. Don, there you go. Uh, a
2: couple other uh, possibilities. One, we just live in a fallen world and bad, bad things happen even to good people. Right. Uh,
0: but, um, but I'm saying, I think God has purpose. No, there's nothing that's chaotic or random. There's right. nothing. So I, I would think God has a purpose in this. God has a purpose in the Holocaust. God has a purpose in raising Pharaoh up. God has a purpose in COVID. God has a purpose in the Ukrainian war. I don't know where they are. But, but, you know, you're right. Part of living in a sinful world is these things happen. But we, I know you're not saying this, but usually when I hear people go that route, it's to simply say there is no purpose. It's just what happens when we live in a fallen world. We serve a God who works all things after the counsel of his will, who for the Christian, for those who love him, works all things together for the good. of the, that's, that's purpose language. So the most, even the most remote little thing, like why did my car tire get flat today? God has a purpose in that. Maybe to teach me patience. I don't know, you know, or whatever. But go, sorry, go.
2: Well, you, you were talking about different uh, reasons or purposes for for suffering. Yeah. Uh, and one other one comes to mind is uh, we can choo- choose intercessory suffering. Yeah. Or vicarious suffering yeah. for for another suffer on the behalf or for the good of another.
0: Right. Uh, well, no, that, I'm thinking. Yeah, First, Second Corinthians one. God comforts us in our affliction so that we might comfort others in their affliction. Maybe I'm going through a season of trial so that I can experience God's goodness in it for a future person God wants you to minister to. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe, maybe there's suffering that's equipping for ministry so you can sympathize and, and, and testify to God's goodness in, in other things. Or maybe God just wants to glorify himself. I mean, imagine this. when, when I, I think his name is Anus, Anus, the man who goes, the Lord sends to, to, to pray for Paul and wipe mm-hmm. the scales from his eyes. I will show you how much someone must suffer for my sake in him. So in one sense, why does Paul suffer so much? Because God wanted to demonstrate. When you sign up, you sign up all the way. <laughs> like, you know, this is how much. Like, I'm God and I might, I might cause you to suffer this much. Now, Paul also gets caught up to the third half. It's not just he gets beat up on. There's, he testifies to the grace but Paul is an extreme example, both of suffering and of strengthening and and grace in that suffering. But here, I want to put on display just how much I'm God and how much you're mine. That I can that I can do as seems good to me. It's like whoa, that that's the reason that I'm I'm not really excited to be. But okay, uh, <laughs> but yeah. Um,
2: then going down on your outline to. Uh... Where it talks about your, the sal uh, let's see here, under salvific, uh, you talk about changing uh, for salvation with your anointed. Yeah. Uh, would Jude 14 and 15 fit in that?
0: Jude 14 and
2: 15. Uh, um, let's, let's see here.
0: Let me look it up. This has got to be the last question because we're at time. So let me, let me look up Jude.
2: And Edic and also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches
0: which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So you're saying the anointed there might be his people? No, no. That's one of the three options. The three options. The first reference to Psalm one hundred and five is the Psalms reference to God referring to His people as anointed, but there is plural. So I think when it's speaking of His people, it would be His anointed ones, like Psalm one hundred and five. So I don't think that's. Some commentators go that way. It would be odd that it's singular, His anointed, not plural, because we do have a pattern for that. So then I think in the near reference, it's it's Cyrus, which Isaiah is already. Isaiah is. Pre Habakkuk, Isaiah's already named my anointed, and then ultimately it's Christ. There is example of the Lord's. people I mean, here's here's an interesting one. I'll I'll close with this: Jesus, who is going to crush the serpent under his feet? Who's going to wound his head? Jesus, right? So in the proto gospel in Genesis three. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, you shall bruise. So Jesus will do the crushing. Listen to Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Paul is saying, in part, the church, the body of Christ, may be used by the Lord in part to fulfill that. Now, I, I think ultimately it's gonna, when Jesus shows up, but Romans sixteen twenty. Is applying some agency to the Christ's body in doing that. So yeah, his saints, his people will will be met, will be instruments of his judgment. And when he shows up to 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 battle the armies of the world, who's with him but his saints, his body, his bride, his church? So we have a role to play in that. And and the Joshua's long day, Israel is functioning as God's weapon and tool to pour out wrath. I mean, it's just amazing. We're not going to be able to get them all. Well, then the day's got to get longer because that judgment needs to come. I mean, you look at God's commitment to judgment. It's, it's terrible in, in the true sense of the word. Um, anyway, we've gone long. Have a good Father's Day. Godspeed. God bless. Good day. Thank you.